convincing authority. Because of the rumours, the Queen's need to impress took on even greater urgency. A battery of thirty knights on horseback, wearing highly polished chainmail and armed with lances and brightly coloured pennants emblazoned with their family's coat of arms, clattered down the streets. They were followed by Joanna's ladies-in-waiting, some reclining in litters, others sitting upright in side-chairs, their ornate headdresses fashionably embellished with braided ropes of false hair made of yellow silk, the exaggerated points of their shoes just visible beneath the hems of their gowns. Medieval protocol dictated the order of procession, and so Joanna, seated on a purebred white mare, led her entourage through the crooked passageways of the city. The Queen wore a magnificent cloak of purple velvet, trimmed in ermine and meticulously woven with gold thread in a recurring pattern of fleur-de-lis, symbol of the French crown from which she traced her lineage. Her horse was similarly attired in purple and fleur-de-lis, with a bridle and stirrups of gold. Although Joanna was an accomplished equestrian, on this occasion her mount was led by two grooms, as the Queen needed her hands free to carry her orb and sceptre insignia of her royal status. Over her head was stretched a canopy of purple silk, fringed in gold thread, held aloft by four of her vassals. The Queen's party had been met at the outskirts of the city by an official delegation of senior church officials and government functionaries. Such was the gravity of the occasion that all eighteen cardinals of the Sacred College, formerly attired in their traditional red hats and robes, appeared to escort her procession to the vast courtyard adjoining the palace of the Pope. This was the Queen of Naples' first glimpse of the great stone fortress designed to glorify the majesty of the church on earth. Still under construction, it was four times the size of any existing cathedral, dwarfing the Louvre in Paris and even the Tower in London. Its vaulted ceilings rose two stories into the air, its towers, supplemented by spires, pierced to yet another story. The overall effect was one of soaring celestial grace combined with a monumental secular power. Here was a building constructed specifically to awe, to intimidate, to unnerve. Joanna was offered the traditional refreshment of wine and pastry, and then led inside the palace to the great hall of the consistory, the ceremonial public room on the ground floor, customarily used by the Pope to greet visiting royalty. It was a long room, very grand. One entire wall was masked by magnificent life-size frescoes portraying the story of John the Baptist. These were the vivid creation of Matteo Giovannetti of Viterbo, the Pictor Papi, Pope's painter, a master artist imported from Italy. At the far end of the room was a two-tiered dais with two velvet and gold thrones placed at the centre of the top tier. The Pope, wearing his tiara and white robes, sat upon one of the thrones. The other remained empty. The lower tier of the dais was occupied by the cardinals, who were arrayed in a semicircle. Together with the Pope they represented judge and jury. Joanna, her mantle held by two pages, walked the long length of the hall until she reached the dais. The room was filled with spectators. From the upper end of the spacious hall to the entrance appeared prelates, princes, nobles, and ambassadors of every European power, wrote seventeenth-century church scholar Louis Mambourg. Following protocol, the Queen knelt on a cushion before the Pope and kissed the gold cross embroidered on his slipper. Afterward he raised her up, kissed her on the mouth, and motioned for her to sit on the empty throne beside him. 
The Pope then said a prayer, and the room fell silent. The trial began. The charges against the Queen of Naples were read aloud in Latin, the only language recognized by the papal court. Joanna stood accused of conspiracy to commit murder. Her principal adversary, the powerful King of Hungary, brother of Prince Andrew, the victim, had earlier sent a squadron of ambassadors and lawyers to the Pope to present Hungarian demands and evidence against the Queen. It was common knowledge, they had argued, that Joanna and her husband had been estranged, and that her barons had tried to thwart his rule while he was alive. Additionally, the murder had taken place at one of the Queen's own palaces, and very nearly in her presence. Worse, she had not shown the proper level of remorse, and had been so slow to investigate the crime that it remained unsolved. Lastly, she had been recently married again, to a man rumoured to have been her lover, without prior dispensation from the Pope.